0: Well hello again all you punk rockers out there. It's time for another episode of Let's Talk Punk Rock. Today you're in for a treat. In case you're having no fun, then let's search and destroy because either we will fall or we'll have a real cool time. That's right. On this episode of Let's Talk Punk Rock, we're talking about the Stooges. so for starters the stooges are one of those bands that might not jump out at you right away but you find yourself with their songs stuck in your head days later and you just have to go back and give them another listen i think i first heard of them on the slc punk soundtrack i liked the song 1969 and i went out and bought that album that album did not leave my car's cd player for weeks it was all i wanted to listen to lead singer iggy pop is called the godfather of punk and it's easy to see why This band had that sound and attitude before anyone else. Their influence stretches to Black Flag, the Sex Pistols, the Damned, the Ramones, you name it. One more thing before I get into this episode. There is a big jump in time here for this band when they broke up. It's not that there wasn't anything happening, it's just that they all went different directions and not always in the punk world or even music world. Iggy did a wildly amazing solo thing, and I went back and forth on if I should include that or not. I decided that I wanted this episode to focus on the Stooges, and I may come back and do an Iggy Pop episode another day focusing on his solo stuff. Also, keep in mind that Iggy's real name is James Osterberg. I'm going to spend the majority of the episode referring to him as Iggy because it helps clear up any confusion on who I'm talking about. But he did still go by James with a lot of people, And Iggy was more of a stage persona of his. Alright, let's get into it. Our story starts out with Ron Ashton, guitarist, and Dave Alexander, bassist, taking a trip to England. They had taken the trip in hopes of seeing the Beatles. They thought if they just wandered around England long enough, they'd just bump into them. They never did find the Beatles, but did check out the Beatles' hot spots like the Cavern Club. Dave Alexander had sold his motorcycle to fund his trip, and the money was running out. So they had to admit defeat and head back to the States. One thing they did get out of this was a new desire to start a band. They began practicing with Scott Ashton, drummer, the younger brother of Ron Ashton. They would play together along with records that they had. Scott Ashton started asking Iggy if he would help him learn to play the drums, as Iggy was a talented drummer by this point already. Now, jumping back some to give background on the guy who would become Iggy Pop. First off, Iggy's real name is James Newell Osterberg. He did not come from money, and being the son of a respected teacher, he grew up in a trailer. He would practice his drums every day in that trailer, and his parents even gave him the master bedroom to help him, so he wouldn't have to break down the drums and set them up each day for practice. He'd also already been in a couple bands by the time that Scott Ashton started asking for lessons. He had played in a band called the Iguanas for a while, and then moved on to playing in the Prime Movers. These were blues groups, and it was the Prime Movers who gave him the nickname Iggy, based on his time playing in the Iguanas. After his time with the Prime Movers, Iggy went to Chicago and played around there. Here, he got the idea to start a band with a newer form of blues. And so, he moved back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and started a band with Ron Ashton, Scott Ashton, and Dave Alexander. This is the band that would become the Stooges. They were essentially a group of outcasts that wanted to play in a band and make a different kind of music. They formed their band, the Stooges, in Ann Arbor in 1967 and took the name from the show, The Three Stooges. Originally, however, they were called the Psychedelic Stooges, but dropped the psychedelic part later on. Pot and LSD being the drugs of choice back then, Iggy would bring over weed to entice the rest of the band to practice instead of screwing around. He had a drive to make this band a success. They weren't very successful early on, but they did practice for months before actually playing anywhere. Part of that push comes from two different shows that they saw. One was The Doors, and the other was an all-girl band in New York called The Untouchables. They played and were far better than The Stooges at that time. The first Stooges show was played on Halloween night at a communal house in 1967. Now this sounds like a show I really wish I'd been around to see. These guys show up in homemade costumes with some homemade instruments. Iggy starts out with a little Hawaiian guitar that has all the strings tuned to E, and the drum kit with some old oil drums with some cymbals and words like shit and pussy painted on it in ultraviolet so that it could only be seen under the black light. Iggy then moves on to some other homemade instruments like a blender with some water in it, or this funnel-type thing he would drop the mic into to get this crazy tonal noise. There weren't really any songs at that point in the band's career, and it ended up being more of a long jam session with Iggy grunting into the microphone. Luckily, drug use was pretty heavy at this party, and I'd guess that helped the band to not be booed off stage. Keep in mind, this is the mid-to-late 60s, so what these guys are doing is fairly unheard of, especially around Ann Arbor, Michigan. They wouldn't play their next show until January 20th, 1968. Around this time, the band starts renting an old farmhouse for them all to live and practice in. It costs them a whopping $325 a month in rent and becomes their own little commune. It gets the nickname The Funhouse. I'm not entirely sure if this was before or after the album Funhouse was made. I've seen it written both ways, but either way, the place was a trash heap. It was filthy, falling apart and had odd symbols and words written all over the walls. It was already condemned to be torn down in coming years to make room for a highway. One thing people who had been there have said is it always had music playing somewhere. Moving forward to Iggy's birthday, April 21st, 1968. This was a crazy day for the band. Let's start with the fact that Ron Ashton loses his virginity and takes acid for the last time this day. I've read where he says it was because the day or the trip was so amazing he wanted that to be his last experience with the drug. Either way, it plays into his future with the band later on. The band has a show that night, and unlike Ron Ashton quitting LSD, Iggy decides to drop acid before the show. They're supposed to be opening for Cream, but the electricity isn't working properly and their music is dulled. The crowd gets restless and begins chanting for Cream to come on stage. Iggy climbs on top of one of the oil drums and begins posing. Always the showman. The power kicks on and the band begins playing. This show was a failure. It does, however, bring out the aggression within Iggy and gives him the idea to create the persona of Iggy Stooge. The surname Pop would come later after an incident when he lost his eyebrows and resembled another guy around Ann Arbor named Jim Pop whose hair had fallen out. This surname would be started by his bandmates. Keep in mind that behind all of the crazy things we hear about Iggy, James Osterberg is an intellectual. He even gets the idea to do his show shirtless from an Egyptology book that he happened to be reading. Many who knew him when he wasn't being Iggy talk about how intelligent he was. Jump ahead a few months to August 11th, 1968, and we have another memorable show from the Stooges. Iggy decides to play the show with low tight pants made from a PVC material and no shirt. Well with all of Iggy's contorting that he does on stage these pants bust and he's left standing there naked. The police are called and Iggy takes off and hides in a station wagon. Eventually he agrees to go into police custody after being assured that he won't be beaten. Unfortunately nobody is able to post bail for Iggy and so his dad has to be called in. This stunt makes it into the newspaper, which would be great for the band, but Iggy is listed as a dancer, making him seem more like a stripper than a singer. Thanks to Iggy, the band soon gets a reputation for wild shows. Things like smearing hamburger meat or peanut butter on his chest or pulling out his dick was not an uncommon sight at these shows. Along with that, Iggy is credited as likely the person who invented the stage dive. The same year as the Suddenly Naked show in 1968, Electra Records sends a guy by the name of Danny Fields out to scout another band in the area, the MC5. Danny Fields is known as the company Freak, meaning he's the guy who actually knows good music when he sees it. Think of it as a company that likes to make money, but needs someone who knows what's actually going on to sell to the youth. Fields is your guy. I've got a feeling we'll be seeing a lot more of Danny Fields throughout this podcast. Anyway, Fields comes out to see the MC5 and agrees to sign them, but wants to sign the Stooges as well. After seeing the Stooges perform, Danny Fields goes backstage to talk to Iggy Pop. He tells him he's from Electra Records and wants to offer him a deal. Iggy doesn't believe him at first and thinks he's some janitor messing with him or just some guy hitting on him. Fields is openly gay, which is where Iggy gets the second impression from. Eventually, he is able to convince Iggy that he is who he says he is and offers them a deal. MC5 gets $20,000 to sign on, and the Stooges are offered $5,000. Remember that Fields was sent out to scout the MC5. Nobody at Elektra really knew about the Stooges, and they were just going off of Fields' recommendation. They were essentially taking a gamble on a band they'd never heard. About a week after the offer is made, they have to audition in front of Jack Holzman, head of Elektra Records. Iggy is insanely nervous for this audition, and the band writes two songs for it, I'm Sick and Asthma Attack. Here's a clip of Asthma Attack where I can only describe it as Iggy making some sort of primal imitation of an asthma attack while the rest of the band has a jam session in the background. Now, that's just a small clip of a a six-and-a-half-minute song that does some other stuff but definitely isn't one of their better hits. Yet somehow, on October 4th, 1968, the Stooges officially sign with Elektra Records. Fields chose a guy named John Cale to help the Stooges produce their first album. Cale hated the MC5 when he saw them, but he saw something in the Stooges worth working on. You may recognize Kale as being one of the founding members of the Velvet Underground. At first, the Stooges thought this was very cool, but they quickly began butting heads with Kale. He struggled getting their raw sound recorded to a point that it really captured what they were like. One story about the recording sessions goes that Kale had asked the band to turn their amps down, and these guys went on strike. They sat on their amps and refused to play. Eventually, a compromise was met where they turned down from 10 to 9. I'm sure I'm not the only one who can identify with this ridiculous defiance, like when a parent tells you to turn down your music so you barely nudge the dial. Anyway, they were under pressure to get this album finished. They only had about five days to record it all, and to make things more difficult, the Stooges didn't even have enough material. Yeah, they start out with only seven songs, Electra tells them that's not good enough and they need more. so they go and write four more songs. Those are "We Will fall," "Little doll," "Real Cool Time" and "Not right." Here's not right, so you get a better idea than what asthma attack was. that right. I want some I want some. that's pretty amazing for a song written on short notice however they are once again sent back to write one more song and they recycle an old one that becomes am a much slower and almost haunting tune take a listen Around April of 1969, Danny Fields gets fired from Electra Records. That same month, the MC5 are dropped from Electra Records due to the motherfucker and kick out the jams. They had a fear that language like that would look bad for the label. Funny how times change. The Stooges manager at the time, Jimmy Silver, hires a lawyer named Alan Bomzer to negotiate with Jack Holzman. He goes in knowing that the label will be worried about losing another big band after dropping the MC5. This guy is able to convince Holzman to give $25,000 for the Stooges. Remember that they had initially been offered $5,000, so this is a pretty nice boost. Move forward to the next month, May 23, 1969, the Stooges play a show where Iggy starts pushing the limits again. He drags a broken drumstick across his chest to the point that it makes him bleed. After the show, he puts on a white shirt, and you can see the blood soaking through it. Weirdly, this piques the interest of a young girl named Wendy Robin Weisberg. She fancies Iggy, and Iggy fancies her. Don't go getting ideas about romance, though. Iggy wants to take this girl's virginity. She says no, and so Iggy does the next sensible thing in the mind of a man desperate for what he wants. He marries her. On July 12th, 1969, they get married on the front lawn of the funhouse. Unsurprisingly, her parents do not attend. And some foreshadowing on how successful this marriage is going to be, Iggy hits on Kathy Ashton, sister of the Ashton brothers, on his wedding day. The band teases the girl constantly in the weeks following until Iggy finally decides it's the marriage or the band. He goes with the band. Their marriage lasted around a month total. Into the next month, 10 days before Woodstock, the Stooges album is released on August 5, 1969 by Electra Records. It makes it up to 106 on the Billboard Top 200. Unfortunately, it's a little ahead of its time and gets mixed reviews. Many say it isn't very good and a little boring, but they still like it. This is that first Stooges album that stayed in my car for so long. In 2003, Rolling Stones places it at number 185 in their Top 500 Albums list. It drops to 488 in their 2020 list, but still far greater than anyone would have expected in 1969. In May of the next year, the band records their follow-up album, Funhouse. Recording for this album goes a little differently than the last one. For starters, the band is taken out to LA to work on it. This one is produced by Don Gallucci. He is given a plane ticket by Elektra and sent to see the band perform. The next day, Holzman asks him how he liked them. He admits that he likes the band, but declines to record their album. He doesn't think you can successfully get that sound recorded. Unfortunately for Gallucci, he works for Elektra and has to produce it anyway. Saxophonist Steve McKay is brought in to add something new to the sound. He postpones his exams he was supposed to take to go record this album. He had been approached by Iggy at Discount Records where he worked and asked to join. Their focus for this album was to record one song a day. That way, they could put their energy into that song for the day and get the best version of it. The band also insisted on bringing their own amps in to record so they could have more control over the sound of their music. The other part of this is that they had gigs lined up in LA and needed that equipment with them. Iggy also admits to dropping acid about 40 minutes before each day's playing to bring some energy to the recording. He neglects, however, to mention this to anyone else. The rest of the band keeps drugs out of the studio. Gallucci makes the decision to record the band live after attempting to record them separately and it sounding awful. While in San Francisco, the Stooges play a show that is attended by the Coquettes. They were like a hippie theater group. Tina Fantusi, a 14-year-old girl living with the cockads, is at that show, and Iggy immediately takes a shine to her. He goes back to their place to try and sleep with her, and it's here that Iggy tries heroin for the first time. June 13th of that year is the infamous Cincinnati Pop Festival. This is the show you've probably seen pictures or footage of where Iggy goes out on the crowd and smears the peanut butter all over his chest. The story I've found gives the credit of handing the peanut butter to Iggy to Stiv Baiters of Lords of the New Church and The Dead Boys. July 7th of that year, Funhouse gets released. The title of this album supposedly comes from Iggy's tripping acid at the studio. He mentions laying on the floor of the studio and seeing the words Funhouse floating just below the ceiling. Unfortunately for the Stooges, Funhouse has nearly as much success as the Stooges' first album. It comes out to mixed reviews. August of 1970, we get to the Goose Lake International Music Festival. They are familiar with Iggy's antics, and he is told that he is not allowed to stage dive. Not being someone to be told what he can and can't do, Iggy attempts to stage dive anyway. He is restrained and tells the crowd to tear it down. The it here is the fence. The crowd begins to rip the fence apart plank by plank, and on this day, Iggy declares he is no longer Iggy Stooge, but Iggy Pop. The band hits some bumps after this festival. For starters, Dave Alexander is fired from the band. I've seen a couple stories here, but they all say that Iggy is the one who fired him, and the rest of the band didn't like it. The main story that pops up is that Dave Alexander showed up to the Gooseland International Music Festival so drunk he couldn't play. Scott Ashton says in his interview on the documentary Gimme Danger that Dave Alexander really wanted to leave the band, so it was okay when he left. The Stooges go through a few different bass players here, including roadies, but finally settle on James Recca. Steve McKay also gets fired here and is left with a heroin addiction to overcome. Luckily, he is able to get his job back at Discount Records and is able to get clean. Another roadie, Bill Cheatham, is brought on as a second guitarist, but is soon replaced by James Williamson. Williamson is a childhood friend of the Ashton brothers and Dave Alexander. He comes in with a bit of a reputation for being rough. When he was younger, his stepfather had told him to cut his hair or go to a juvenile home. He opted for the home, where they cut his hair anyway, giving him a rebellious look. By now, everyone in the band other than Ron Ashton has developed an addiction to heroin. This pissed Ron Ashton off, especially when they would pawn equipment to afford the drug. The show started to become more crazy, and sometimes Iggy would be so far gone that he couldn't stand up straight on stage. Electra is beginning to get fed up with the band. Things only intensified in 1971. One story has Scott Ashton driving the truck under a bridge that is too low and peels the top off like a can of sardines. This lands him in the hospital, and Steve McKay is brought back to play drums this time. He's not a great drummer and begins pissing Iggy off. Iggy has to show him how to play his drum parts with nearly every song they play. Around this time, crowds really start to turn on the band. They begin throwing things at Iggy and yelling at him. The band is getting ready to start on a third album, and Elektra sends Gallucci over to determine if they should bother. Gallucci already hates the idea of doing another album with these guys, especially after the last one did so poorly. He gets a tour of the funhouse from Ron Ashton. All goes okay until he sees Ashton's room and all of the Nazi memorabilia. Now, according to Ron, his fascination with Nazi memorabilia stems from his father, who was a military pilot. He would bring home Nazi items as gifts, and Ron just clung to that. Finally, due to a bad reputation, not liking what they were hearing, and a recommendation by Gallucci, Electra fires the band. The Stooges break up that same year. As if to signal the end of an era... The funhouse is finally bulldozed a few months after the band breaks up, and Elektra begins to consider doing some sort of solo deal with Iggy. On September 7th, 1971, Iggy meets someone who is truly going to help him get his career going one day. That man is none other than David Bowie. Bowie had been a fan of Iggy's for a good few years now, and a meeting was arranged at Max's Kansas City in New York. The two hit it off and quickly become friends. On David Bowie's recommendation, Iggy signs a recording contract with music manager Tony DeFreeze. He helps Iggy get a meeting with Clive Davis of Columbia Records and lands him a two-record deal. Iggy agrees, but wants James Williamson on too. March of 1972. Iggy and Williamson are flown to the UK to start up the Stooges again, but with British musicians. None really fit, and Williamson repeatedly shoots them all down. The Ashton Brothers are brought back into the mix because of this. Ron Ashton has a bit of a hard time with this due to being second pick after all of these British musicians and the fact that he is demoted to playing bass guitar. The name of the band is also slightly altered to now be Iggy and the Stooges. In 1973, Iggy and the Stooges released what is arguably one of their better albums, Raw Power, which includes one of their biggest hits of all time, Search and Destroy, this song title came from a column headline in Time magazine about the Vietnam War according to Iggy. In 2004, the song was listed at number 468 on Rolling Stone's greatest 500 songs of all time. Have a listen and you can see why. I'm a, with a, hat full of I'm a runaway son of the nuclear A-band. Oh, boy, the one who and destroys. Unfortunately, they are ahead of their time once again and the album is not well received. David Bowie is usually blamed here for poor mixing of the album. Some fans take it upon themselves to remix it and call it Rough Power, which I find slightly comical, and Iggy himself remixed it for re-release in 1997. Shortly after the failure of Raw Power, Iggy and the Stooges are dropped from Columbia Records. Despite being dropped, the band sticks with Tony Defree's management company, Main Man. Around this time, the drug use in the band is getting way out of hand. They are moved out to a house in Hollywood with a pool where occasionally people think Iggy is actually dead floating in it because he is so doped up that he is barely moving. He would have to be pulled out of the pool just to make sure he was alive. Things really start to crumble for the Stooges around this time. One of the final straws was at an after party for a homecoming show they played in Detroit. A girl tries to hug Iggy and he pushes her, causing her to nearly fall down a flight of stairs. James Williamson gets blamed for the band's bad behavior. They're given an ultimatum of either agreeing to drop Williamson from the band or having the band drop from Mainman. Williamson is dropped and goes on to be the projectionist at a porno theater for a while. He's replaced by a guy called Tornado Turner. Even despite this, they still end up getting dropped from Mainman due to their crazy behavior. A few more lineup changes come after this. Bob Chef gets added to the band to play piano, but he has to leave when money dries up for him. He is then replaced by Scott Thurston. Tornado Turner doesn't hold a good enough stage presence for Iggy, and so James Williamson is called back into the band. Now the Stooges are ready to start touring again for 73. One night, they play a show at Max's Kansas City, where Iggy had met Bowie. During the show, Iggy falls and rolls in some broken glass, cutting himself pretty badly. Ever the showman, Iggy continues the show with blood literally spurting out of him at times. There is some speculation here on how it happened. Enough people saw it to know that it did in fact happen, but some said it was done intentionally, while others said he just slipped onto a table shattering some glasses. The cuts are so bad, though, that Alice Cooper himself goes backstage after the show and insists that Iggy go get professional medical assistance. Iggy agrees and goes to get patched up. He returns to Max's Kansas City right after that, though. On August 19th of that year, they play the Kennedy Center. Iggy gets so messed up before the show that he can barely walk. The band doesn't even take the stage for an entire hour after the show was supposed to begin. Iggy has to be brought out to the stage and dumped there. He mumbles some lyrics and then stumbles off into the crowd. By the time he makes it back to the stage, someone has smashed a peanut butter and jelly sandwich into his chest. With stunts like these being pulled, the band is seeing less and less gigs. Venues just don't want the liability of having the Stooges play there. They did land a New Year's show in New York City that year. They would be playing with Blue Oyster Cult, Teenage Lust, and Kiss. This is supposedly Kiss's first show as Kiss after changing from Wicked Lester. The show was originally intended to be recorded and sold by Columbia Records. Columbia decided that the tapes were not even worth releasing. The Stooges break up again in February of 1974. Little opportunities are presenting themselves, and Iggy Pop's behavior is becoming more unpredictable. Iggy's heroin addiction is becoming more intense at this time, too. He even gets picked up by the police. They bring him to a psych ward to get help. The doctors there diagnose him with what they call hypomania. Here's a list of symptoms that I found online for hypomania. Abnormally upbeat, jumpy, or wired. Increased activity, energy or agitation. Exaggerated sense of well-being and self-confidence, euphoria. Decreased need for sleep. Unusual talkativeness. Racing thoughts. distractibility; Poor decision-making. For example, going on buying sprees, taking sexual risk, or making foolish investments. Does that not sound like the Iggy Pop we've learned so much about? Iggy agrees to attempt rehab to help with his heroin addiction. On February 11, 1975, tragedy strikes the members of the Stooges. Dave Alexander, the original bass player of the band, has died of a pulmonary edema, which is similar to pneumonia. This is supposedly linked to his pancreatitis, which is linked to his excessive drinking. When Iggy found out, he told Ron Ashton that he didn't really care. Despite Iggy's only look-out-for-yourself attitude, I'd say this affected him. Either way, saying he didn't care really pissed Ron Ashton off. James Williamson had to step in and smooth things over. After some time being down and out, Iggy joins David Bowie on his station-to-station tour. Now, this next part may seem to blow by pretty fast, and that's because I'm leaving a lot out. I went back and forth on this but ultimately wanted this to be an episode about the stooges and not iggy pop so i've left a lot out about his solo career fast forward a year to 1976 iggy and bowie are working on the idiot they both end up living together in berlin and agree to try to kick their drug habits this especially means heroin for iggy in september of 1976 metallic ko is released It is the last recording at that time of a Stooges live show. It was recorded at the Michigan Palace. In a fortunate upturn, the album is loved by the punk community. Ironically, this becomes the first real successful Stooges album. Tony DeFreeze is upset by the release of this album and claims that the Stooges are still under contract with Main Man. He begins sending cease and desist letters to Mark Zermati, who is producing Metallic KO. The album is so successful They end up selling over a hundred thousand copies iggy officially starts his solo career in 1977. march 1st of that year iggy plays a show with bowie on keyboards they play at a place called aylesbury friars this is a small club in london he's there promoting his solo album the idiot in attendance of this show are members of the damned the heartbreakers the sex pistols generation x and the adverts He gets criticized for not being as over-the-top as he had been in the past. The Idiot and my personal favorite Iggy Pop album, Lust for Life, both get released in 77. They are also both recorded by Bowie. Around this time, the heavy drug use starts up again. Iggy goes on tour and ends up in Tokyo. Here, he meets his wife, Suchi. She was at his show, and he spotted her in the crowd. They end up moving to Los Angeles together, and Iggy gets himself clean, finally. Meanwhile, Ron Ashton continues to play music. He plays in The New Order. He eventually switches and plays with Destroy All Monsters from 77 to 85. James Williamson becomes engineer and producer to Iggy's early career. He moves on to electronics engineering in 1980, though. He eventually moves on to work for Sony and retires in 2009 as their vice president of technical standards. Scott Ashton continues to play music too. He finds himself playing drums in Sonic's Rendezvous Band and the Scott Morgan Group. With Iggy's solo career underway, the band truly does stay broken up for a few decades here. A few things happened, bringing them up again here and there such as the re-release of Raw Power mixed by Iggy Pop in 1997 but not much more. In 2002 the author Jeff Gold purchased some unlabeled recordings in boxes from Danny Fields out of a storage locker that Danny had stopped paying on. Knowing that there was a chance he had something good Gold rented a recording studio for the reel-to-reel equipment they would have there. He started going through the unlabeled recordings he had purchased. In it He found old, never-before-heard recordings of the Stooges' live shows and even an outtake of asthma attack. The following year, in 2003, the Stooges finally reunite after almost 30 years. They do some extensive touring over the next five years and travel to five different continents. In August of 2005, Elektra and Rhino Records release a remastered two-disc set of the Stooges' first album. Disc 1 has the original stuff on it, and Disc 2 has all of the outtakes and alternates. In 2007, the Stooges released The Weirdness and go on a world tour. This album, like so many Stooges albums before it, has some mixed reviews. In 2008, the band gets voted into the Michigan Rock and Roll Legends Hall of Fame. This is not to be confused with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, of which they get six nominations that year. While touring in Montreal, The band suffers a fate most touring musicians fear will happen. Their equipment gets stolen. September 29th of that year, Ron Ashton plays his last show with the Stooges in Slovenia. January of 2009, Ron Ashton is found dead. He had had a heart attack days before. James Williamson, who had made a decent name for himself at Sony, gets called in to replace Ashton. He does, and the Stooges have their sound again. In 2010, the Stooges are finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They had been nominated seven times and are inducted by Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day. In his acceptance speech, Iggy pays tribute to Stooges' past and thanks to the fans, telling them all that they are cool. In 2013, they release Ready to Die. I find this slightly ironic, as this is only a handful of years from Ron Ashton's death, And only a couple of years before a couple more deaths of band members scott ashton drops out of touring due to health concerns and toby dammit takes his place the stooges play their last show in 2013. march 15th 2014 scott ashton dies of a heart attack october of the next year steve mckay dies as well with only iggy pop and james williamson left as members from the stooges glory days The band officially breaks up for a final time in 2016. Wow. Alright, that is it for the Stooges. A quick note I want to add in here. Like I said, there is a lot that happens with this band during the 30-year span that they are broken up. If you're curious about what was going on with Iggy during his solo career at that time, it is definitely interesting and I recommend checking out the book Open Up and Bleed by Paul Trinka. That book is filled with great stories and information about Iggy Pop. The documentary Gimme Danger by Jim Jarmusch is also a great resource for some more information on the Stooges. Finally, I'd like to thank all you punk rockers out there for giving this show a listen. It truly means a lot to me to know that there are others interested in these stories. Thank you again to those of you who have shared your ideas of what bands should be covered in future episodes. I'll be getting to some of those soon enough. A special thanks to granddaddy long Greg for making the logo for our show here. If you like the logo or just want to find a way to support the show, head on over to T public and get some of our merchandise. They've got shirts, tapestries, pillows, you name it. A link to that is in the show notes. Once again, thank you all. This is a one man production and takes a lot of my time with the research, scripting, recording, and editing. If you would, please leave me a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever it is you're listening to this. That helps a lot. It's also a great place to share with me some of your ideas for what bands should be covered in upcoming seasons. You can also just tell a friend to check out the show. Word of mouth is definitely the best way to get this out there. If I happen to get anything wrong in this episode, feel free to email me at letstalkpunkrock at gmail.com. I will try to get those corrections added onto the episode as fast as I can. I also love hearing other people's punk rock experiences, so if you have any crazy stories, please email those to me at letstalkpunkrock at gmail.com. As long as it's punk related, I want to hear it. I'm talking, did you play in a punk band that got crazy? Ever meet one of your punk rock idols? Ever go to a show that just absolutely blew your mind? Tell me about it. I may even end up reading it in a future episode. I'm still in the process of setting up that phone line, so emails are still the number one place for those stories. If email isn't your thing, however, check me out on Twitter at Let's Talk Punk. That is let's underscore talk underscore punk. There's also a Facebook page I'm getting fixed up for you to share your ideas and meet other punk rockers on. Listen, I deleted my Facebook account maybe 10 years ago, so I'm relearning how the whole thing works. So if you have any suggestions after seeing the page, send me a message and I'll be happy to give it a shot. Alright, now on to our last portion of the show. Some hints as to next week's band. These guys formed in Berkeley, California in 1991. Some members were formerly in Operation Ivy, and they are still active today. Think you know who I'm hinting at? Let me know what you think on social media. Otherwise, you'll just have to wait until the next episode to find out. Okay. Okay. That's it. Catch you on the flip side.